Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing! You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 350, and today we are talking about books being released on February 22nd, 2022, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Patricia L.Z. Tuttle, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Patricia, hello! Hey, Liberty! Happy 2-22-22! Yes! I was going to say, we have a couple of exciting things about today. One, we were discussing how this is the 350th episode of All the Books, and you were saying it felt like we just did 300, and indeed it did, but it had to have been a year ago, if we go by weeks, which is wild. You know, it feels like we just did it. Yeah. And also, today is two, 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 two. So <laughs> I like to make the noise like a Star Wars laser gun. I really hope to do something exciting to commemorate today because I missed my chance on like six, six, six. You know, I wanted to like shave my head and my boss said she would fire me if I did that. Um, and so I was like, maybe I'll shave my head on, you know, February 22nd, 2022. But it's looking like no. I don't think I'm going to. I mean, I have already done it once now since then, since 666. So, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. Do you have any special plans to commemorate this once in a lifetime date? I mean, I work my day job, so not really. Um, <laughs> but like I was trying, like I searched the internet and I'm like, it's too a lucky number. And so the internet tells me in Chinese numerology too is a lucky number. Because apparently there is a saying in some places that good things come in pairs. So I don't oh. I don't know. I'm like, is that a lucky day? Because it's also on Tuesday. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know. Do I play the lottery? Like, what do I do? Yeah. I hope it's a lucky day because I could really use it. I mean, it has been a week. Things keep breaking. Uh, I got locked out of my house uh, last Tuesday on the coldest day that we've had in weeks. It was like 12 degrees outside. And I went outside to get something out of my car. And we have a keypad for our door because someone in this house who is not me is not very good at remembering their keys and continue to lock themselves out of the house. It's one of the cats. Um, But I got a keypad and it solved all our problems. And we've had it for like years and years and years, right? Well, apparently... It decided to die the other day <gasps> after I left. So I locked my door because my car is far enough away from my house. Like, And then I was talking to the neighbors and like, we have this weirdly large amount of incidences in my neighborhood of, of people wandering into the wrong home. Mm. Like, you know, and, and thinking they're at their home, you know, usually enhanced by chemicals. And so I always keep my door locked and uh, I got locked out. So that was not fun. I was freezing and then I called a locksmith and then I got mad at them. 
because they were like, it's $200 to let you back into your house and you have to pay it before we unlock your door. And I was like, I'm locked out of my house. <laughs> like, how am I supposed like, to? Yeah. My stuff is, and they're like, well, we're sorry. You know, we can't. And so eventually I just got really mad and broke a window instead. So. <laughs> and saved $200. Although I don't know how much a oh my window goodness. replacement costs. Well, it was just like, it was just one that, you know, it's like a little pain and it's all fixed and it's fine. But it's like $200 plus it was another 100 to $200 if they had to pick the lock. If they could get it open like the normal way. So I could have sp- conceivably spent $400 to get back in my house. That would have, yeah. So. This is like the third or fourth time within the past couple of weeks, I like the universe has sent me a sign that it is a good idea to get a lockpicking set and learn <laughs> lockpicking, um, which I think a lot of people have been doing over the uh, pandemic, over the panini. Like there's there's a lot of lockpicking exercises going on, like people like buying locks and then posting on their internet like things, so... Well, like, normally, there is a key that goes with your keypad. Like, it's not just, like, you're not relying entirely upon the keypad. But then I got locked out of my house without my keys. So, like, there's a, you know, I I couldn't do anything. But, yeah, it's just been, it's just been that kind of week. You know, last week I recorded with a migraine. Um, I don't know. I'll stop whining. (laughs) You know, everyone I have talked to at my day job and also my friends it's just like if we have like a little one-on-one meeting and people are like how are you and I'm like wow I am incredibly burned out totally fried (laughs) very crispy and everyone I've talked to is like oh my gosh me too yeah it's going around it's going around and I know a lot of people are like keeping their game faces on but I've also been trying to be like super compassionate with people because I'm like everyone is fried right now it's true. So let's talk about good things like books. Yes. Before we do that, we are going to hear from a sponsor. Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. Okay. And also, before we do that, I want to remind you again, uh, don't forget to check out our new line of bookish Wordle-inspired merchandise. We have mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, and more. It is a temporary Book Riot campaign, so order your items now before they sell out or go away. Go to bookriot.com merch to check it all out. And also, uh, I want to remind you that we now have ATB available in closed captioning. You can find that version on YouTube. There'll be a link for that in the show notes. That's really exciting. It is exciting. Yeah. So, all right, here we go now. I'm going to tell you about books. I feel like I've been waiting to tell you about this book forever. Also, I feel like I say that every single week. It's probably true. My first pick for today is The Verifiers by Jane Peck. This is a fantastic debut novel that is a lot of fun and has a lot of heart, and I loved it. It's about a young woman named Claudia Lin. She is the daughter of Chinese immigrants living in New York, 
And all they want for her is for her to find a nice Chinese boy and settle down. But Claudia doesn't want that for her. Because, one, she enjoys her life the way it is. And two, she's keeping secrets from her family, one of which is the fact that she's queer. Another secret she is keeping from her family is that she no longer works the corporate job that her family set her up with and is instead working as an amateur sleuth for an online dating agency. Claudia works for a company called Veracity, where the wealthy check out, they hire the sleuth at the business to check out the people they are considering dating and making sure they're all that they say they are. But when one of her clients goes missing, she disobeys protocol to investigate her disappearance on her own. Because something about the woman and her interests in veracity don't seem to fit with the usual clients that they have, and Claudia thinks that there's something more to what is going on. But as she digs deeper into the case of the missing client, she uncovers a world of secrets and lies that goes right up the chain of command. This novel is part mystery and part family drama. Peck explores human lives in the age of social media and online dating, like, I got a chance to listen to her talk about this book at a publisher virtual event a few weeks ago, and it was so much fun. And, you know, I asked her this question, and, and it, she had a great answer for it, which I'm, like, forgetting now, of course. But I said, you know, if you knew, do you think that if people knew that detectives would be checking out, you know, and verifying what you say when you fill out an online profile, if people would be more likely to tell the truth or less likely to use the service... And she thinks it would be, I think she said she thought it would be about the same. But, like, imagine, like, you know, if you know detectives are going to be, like, saying, you know, would people, like, pad what they say, you know, like, oh, I was this and I was that, when in fact they would, you know, or would they just be like, I'm not going to use this service, you know, because, like, all those little white lies that I tell about myself to make myself, you know, look big and important, you know, (laughs) people are going to find out they're not true. (laughs) And Claudia is also a great amateur detective. She felt like a real person. And, you know, the novel has this family aspect where she's dealing with disappointing her parents. Claudia is the youngest, and she's the only one who was raised in the States. Her older brother and sister were sent to China to live with her grandmother. So she had to stay behind with a mother who is very critical of her and doesn't have very many nice things to say to her. And Claudia, you know, might be about finding a missing woman, but The Verifiers is about finding yourself, no matter what anyone else says or wants. And Jane Peck did say this is a standalone for now. I am hoping that there will be more because I really enjoyed Claudia. I do want to give content warnings for mentions of suicide, death, homophobia, racism, violence, and murder. I wrote death twice. Um, And this is The Verifiers by Jane Peck. For my first pick, I have Dead Collections, a novel by Isaac Fellman. I promise that I don't deliberately always pick books that are set in San Francisco, but it seems like many of the books I read and enjoy are set here. Queer Archivist Vampire, I couldn't not pick up this book, and I am so glad I did. Little backstory, when I started my library grad program, I initially thought I wanted to be an archivist. I ended up not taking that track, but I am still completely romanced by the idea and books with archivists, much less queer vampire ones, are like catnip to me. Well, but I'm not a cat. Patricia Nip? People nip? I don't know. I don't like where this is going. Uh, <laughs> anyway, our protagonist is Soul Cats. Soul is short for Solomon. 
Saul is a Jewish trans man who is also an archivist and also a vampire. Most people don't know he's a vampire. Well, HR at the archives knows, but his coworker Florence doesn't know. Florence is really transphobic and every interaction she has with Saul makes me clench my jaw. They work at the Historical Society of Northern California. The archives are, of course, in a basement devoid of windows, so Saul is totally safe from the sun down there. He has been living in slash sleeping in his office, totally against the rules, by the way. He is too terrified of trying and maybe failing to sunproof an apartment, so he just lives and works in the archives and sometimes goes out around town at night. He at least goes out once a week or so to get his blood transfusion. He doesn't actually attack people and drink their blood. Vampires are a known entity, and they are people who can go to night clinics where they get blood that can't be given to the living, such as blood that has viral infections. Our other main character is Elsie. She has decided to donate her deceased wife's papers, ephemera, etc. to the Historical Society, and Saul has accepted. The deceased, Tracy, was the creator of Feet of Clay, a 90s cult classic show that was kind of like a knockoff X-Files. Saul was obsessed with Feet of Clay back in the 90s and was deeply into the fandom. Well, Elsie, it seems, is super into Saul, and flirting blooms into a tentative romance. More than once in the book, Saul comes out as transgender, and then comes out as vampire, and then sometimes comes out as both at once. The book is not only told through Saul's point of view, but from bits and pieces of Tracy's papers that were donated old emails, fan fiction, and scripts. Dead Collections is an intricate story about the histories of the main characters, and it involves meditations on identity, grief, love, and empathy. I thought it was an absolutely lovely book, and it definitely had a good amount of laughs at the same time. Again, it's Dead Collections, a novel by Isaac Fellman. All right. My next pick is the beautiful novel, The Swimmers, by Julie Otsuka. Otsuka wrote When the Emperor Was Divine and also The Buddha in the Attic. The Buddha in the Attic came out like nine or ten years ago, and When the Emperor Was Divine came out like ten years before that. So basically, she's like Donna Tart with one amazing novel every ten years. Uh, this is a beautiful, heartbreaking novel. It is only 200 pages long. It's told in the second person and is divided into several sections. The swimmers of the title are a group of people who gather at an underground swimming pool. And Otsaka talks about these swimmers, you know, how like they just kind of like leave the above ground world behind when they're in their underground world of the pool. You know, she talks about their routines and their athletic abilities, their jobs, their bodies, their families. And one of the swimmers is an elderly woman named Alice. Alice is beginning to lose her memory. She does pretty well on her own, but every once in a while she gets confused. And one of the rules of the pool is, you know, be kind to Alice. You know, like, if you can't be kind to Alice, you have to leave. But then one day, someone notices a crack in the floor of the pool. And people are starting to, like, wonder, like, what does this mean? What caused it? 
people are starting to think like, am I actually really seeing it? They try to cover it up. You know, then then everybody's talking about it. You know, what does this mean for us if there's a crack in the pool? There are crack deniers. Um, you know, how will they fix it? And then, you know, more develop. And eventually the pool is closed. Uh, another section follows Alice at home. Uh, as she She's older now um, and her memory is, is starting to deteriorate more. You know, we learn about, you know, what she does and doesn't remember about her life. Um, she's a Japanese American. She, she and her family were put in an internment camp when she was a child. Uh, she thinks about the man that she didn't marry, the baby that she lost, the daughter who visits her now. And as Alice's memory gets worse, it, the point of view changes to her daughter. And she and her daughter were estranged and she has sort of missed her chance to ask her mother the things about their life that she wanted to know because now her mother doesn't remember things. Um, and so she is spending the time with Alice that she has left with her. It is a heart punch. It is. It sounds like it. And it is. Uh, but it's beautiful. She writes almost, I don't know how to describe it, like this hyper aware fiction. She writes almost in lists. Like when she's talking about Alice, you know, she's saying like, she remembers the man she didn't marry. She doesn't remember where she set her keys. She remembers, you know, like when they're talking about the people in the pool, they're like, you know, there's a guy who does this. There's a guy who does that. It's almost like these lapping waves of sentences. There's another writer, uh, Kieran Desai, that kind of writes like that, that it reminded me of. But you definitely have to get into the rhythm of it because everything is like, if they find a rock... This is an example. This is not in the book. But, like, imagine, like, they find a rock. They'd be like, did the rock fall from the sky? Did the rock get kicked up by a tire from a car? Did someone drop the rock? Like, there's always, like, many possibilities about each thing that's happening in the book. And, you know, the cracks in the pool. You know, in the end, I think, you know, they're metaphors, you know, for Alice's mind, for her relationship with her daughter, for the world. I cried. It's, you know, it's beautiful and it's very sad. And, and I cried and that felt good. And I highly recommend also going back and reading uh, When the Emperor Was Divine and The Buddha and the Attic because they are also wonderful. I do want to give content warnings for mentions of terminal illness, loss of a loved one, child death, racism, body shaming, and suicide. This is The Swimmers by Julie Atsuka. Cool. Yeah. I'm like, I love hearing about more short books. <laughs> you love big books. I'm like, ooh, give me a short book. <laughs> um. So for my next pick, I have I'm So Not Over You by Kosako Jackson. Black gay romantic comedy with fake dating? Yes, please. Our main protagonist is Kean Andrews, and this story is told from his point of view. Kean is a gay black man just out of college, Northeastern, and still living in Boston. Kean studied journalism and fully intends to go on to be a journalist, but he is currently unemployed. Kian's best friend, his ride or die, is Divya Evans. She is studying law at Harvard and calls Kian on his BS every single time. She lets nothing slide, and I absolutely love this character. Before the beginning of this book, maybe a few weeks before, Kian's boyfriend broke up with him and left him devastated, which is probably why, on like the second page of chapter one, Divya is yelling at Kian via text because Kian responded to a text from the ex-boyfriend asking to meet up, and Kian said yes. He knows it's probably an awful idea, but Kian is still head over heels for him. Let's talk about this ex-boyfriend for a minute. 
His name is Hudson Rivers. Yes, Hudson Rivers. He is from Atlanta. The Rivers family is the third richest in the South as they are the family behind the Rivers and Valleys brand of alcohol. Whiskey distillery, brewery, bajillionaires. And Hudson, he's gorgeous, absolutely stunning, and also a really good person. And Kian is still madly in love with him. So they meet up at the coffee shop, as Hudson asked. He wants a favor, which it's clear he doesn't deserve. Much to Hudson's family's dismay, Hudson doesn't want to be involved with the family business at all. He actually wants to go into a grad program and become a psychologist. He wants to help people. Of course, his parents are incredibly disappointed in him. They were also disappointed that he went to Northeastern and not Yale. Long story short, they think that every decision Hudson makes is a bad one, except for the decision to date Kean. His parents think that dating Kean is the one good decision he has ever made. They do not know he broke up with Kean and they are coming to town for a visit. Hudson is just desperate for his parents' approval, and so he asks Kean to pretend to be his boyfriend just for the one lunch date during their visit. In return, Hudson will make a connection between Kian and the CEO of Spotlight, an online news corporation that Kian is dying to get a job at. Fake date for one lunch and be set for the rest of his life. Easy, right? I laughed so loudly reading this book. Yes, it's sweet and very sexy. There is definitely sex on the page, but it's also absolutely hilarious. Every character pops. I would kill to see this on screen. I love it so much. It's I'm So Not Over You by Kosuko Jackson. All right. I have that around here somewhere to read. I I put it off because I knew you want to talk about it. So it's a fun one. It's so much fun. Yes. Um, am I mistaken in thinking that Kosuko Jackson has two books coming out this year? Oh, I don't know. I think that's possible, or I could just be making things up right now. <laughs> you know, as we're talking, uh, yes, Survive the Dome comes out in March, or it was as of the last time I wrote it down, um, which is like a, a YA thriller, I think. Mm. I could also be making that up. I don't know. But yes, another book coming out at the end of March. So, weirdly enough, my next book is also set in Boston. It is The Midnight Ride by Ben Mesrich. Now, I don't know how to say this. I, I'm not saying this to be mean. I don't want it to sound mean because I thought this book was great fun. But this is kind of a ridiculous book. Um, it is exactly the escapism that I needed when I read it. Uh, it is about a college student in Boston named Haley. Haley can count cards. And she's doing that to get money to pay her tuition. Except one day the hotel security catches on to what she's doing. And instead of getting in trouble, she flees further into the hotel where the casino is uh, to hide from the security guards and instead gets dragged into a centuries-old mystery involving a secret society when she finds a dead body in a hotel room. Now, in this hotel room where she's hiding uh, and where she finds this body, she meets Nick, who is not the dead person. He's an ex-con who is recently out of prison, and he has gotten wrapped up in a plot 
to buy some art. He's there to meet a guy for an art deal involving stolen paintings from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. If you know your Boston history or if you watched the Netflix special recently about it, it was one of the biggest art heists of all time at the Isabella Gardner Stewart Museum. Uh, it's still not solved to this day. So Nick kind of grabs Haley and they flee the hotel together and go on the run because someone has killed his contact and he knows there's some bad stuff about to go down. There is so much more involved as they discover a plot involving Paul Revere, the Midnight Rider uh, of the you know title, Paul Revere, the British are coming, the British are coming, that Paul Revere. And there's also a professor who receives a mysterious package from his nemesis, which gets him involved with Haley and Nick uh, once they realize they've stumbled upon one of the biggest historical secrets in America's history. I guess that would make that would be why it was a historical secret. I got a little redundant there. Um, so if the name Ben Mesrich sounds familiar, it's because he wrote Breed Down the House, the inside story of the six MIT students who took Vegas for millions, which was made into a movie. He wrote Sex on the Moon, the amazing story behind the most audacious heist in history. Uh, he wrote The Accidental Billionaires, The Founding of Facebook, A Tale of Sex, Money, Genius, and Betrayal, which was made into The Social Network. He's written a lot. But before he wrote those nonfiction books, he used to write X-Files tie-ins, which is pretty exciting. And he's also written some thrillers. And he's gone back to that with this book. It's just fun. It's kind of like Da Vinci Code. It has these Indiana Jones-type villains. Uh, it's just, you know, it has a fun conspiracy and a treasure hunt. It reads like a film, and that's probably because Steven Spielberg has already bought the story uh, before, I'm pretty sure, before it was even finished. So basically, he's just doing us a favor by getting it down in book form, because we are going to see this on the screen. And I just, I just thought it was really fun. So if you like conspiracies, if you like history, if you like cartoony villainy, then you want to pick this up. I want to give content warnings for violence and murder. And you know, cartoon villainy. It is The Midnight Ride by Ben Mesrich. And now we are going to hear from our next sponsor. All right, Patricia, what do you have next? For my next book, it's a rom com kind of month. I have Delilah Green Doesn't Care by Ashley Herring Blake. This is a sapphic rom com that is both sexy and sweet and has a really big heart. Delilah Green is a photographer trying to make it in the New York art scene. The opening scene of the book is Delilah being woken up by a buzzing phone. She's in the bed of a woman whose name she doesn't remember. She rarely does, and this happens often, and it's 2 a.m. in New York. On the phone is her stepsister, Astrid. Astrid still lives in the small town where they grew up, Bright Falls, Oregon. Delilah and Astrid hate each other. Delilah's father and Astrid's mother got married when the girls were eight, but then Delilah's father unexpectedly passed away two years later. Astrid's mother, Isabel, is not the most loving person, so as soon as she graduated high school, Delilah moved to New York and never looked back. Astrid and her mean girl friends, Claire and Iris, made Delilah's life a living hell when they were kids and teens. To say that Delilah and Astrid are estranged would be putting it too lightly. Of course, also, Delilah and Astrid are total opposites. Astrid is blonde, Miss Perfect overachiever, and Delilah is dark-haired and brooding and flaky and unreliable. Anyway, as I was saying, Delilah naked in bed with another one nightstand, her phone buzzes, it's Astrid, 
Astrid's two-week wedding extravaganza begins in 24 hours, and her mother insisted she hire Delilah as the photographer. Delilah hates the idea of being back in that town and hates the idea of being around those people, but the amount of money she'll be making forces her hand. So she decides she can just deal for two weeks. She'll also do her best to be a complete thorn in her stepsister's side, so that's a fun little bonus. In chapter two, we get to meet Claire, one of Astrid's BFFs. Claire and Iris, the other friend, are also still in Bright Falls, and the two of them are getting drinks at the one bar in town. Claire got pregnant right out of high school and has an 11-year-old named Ruby. Ruby is having some growing pains and, with that, frequent mood swings and tantrums. Ruby's father, Josh, is really unreliable. Josh and Claire aren't together anymore, and Claire's mostly been on her own with Ruby. Josh comes and goes as he pleases, never saying goodbye, and is basically an overgrown child that Claire doesn't really trust to take care of Ruby, even just for one night. It's also been a really long time since Claire has gotten laid. Iris insists that before Claire cuts the night short to go helicopter over Josh and Ruby, she gets at least one person's number at the bar. Fine, Claire can do that. One person's number. She looks over to the bar and sees a smoking hot woman. Big, wild, curly black hair. Tattoos down each arm. Tight black jeans. Every one of Claire's green flags. Of course, you probably know where this is going. The woman in question is Delilah Green. Claire goes over and starts flirting hard. She doesn't recognize Delilah at all. But Delilah recognizes her. Doesn't say a thing, just flirts back. This is only in the first couple of chapters. There is a whole two weeks of wedding events that these women are going to have to get through. The book is so delicious in so many ways. Yes, there is some very steamy sex on the page. And also, this book is incredibly funny. I kept getting side-eye from my wife because I would just burst into laughter every few minutes while I was reading it. It's so much fun. It's Delilah Green Doesn't Care by Ashley Herring Blake. Okay. I'm going to have to put that one on my list. (laughs) My last pick for today is a true crime book. It is Scoundrel, How a Convicted Murderer Persuaded the Women Who Loved Him, the Conservative Establishment, and the Courts to Set Him Free by Sarah Weinman. I think that there's like a word count that you have to hit for subtitles on nonfiction books because I feel like every time I talk about them, I'm saying like a hundred words after the original title. But moving on, uh, this is Sarah Wyman's third or fourth true crime book. She writes excellent stories about true crime and has written many articles. This book is about a conceited middle-aged blowhard writer who has the hubris to think he knows better than the American criminal justice system and campaigns to have a convicted murderer released only to have it bite him on the bum. Now, you'd think I was talking about Norman Mailer, but no, I'm talking about William F. Buckley. Norman Mailer did the exact same thing several years later because he apparently did not learn from William F. Buckley's experience. So, in the 1960s, William F. Buckley, the founder of National Review, eventually somehow ended up becoming pen pals with Edgar Smith, who had spent the last 14 years on death row for murdering Victoria Zielinski, a 14-year-old girl. Now, Buckley decided that in his letters, you know, back and forth, and as he learned about Smith, that someone who had such passionate views about neoconservatism and shared so many of his viewpoints 
could obviously not be capable of committing such a horrific crime as the one he was accused of. So Buckley campaigned not only for Smith's life to be spared, but helped get his conviction overturned and got Smith out of jail. And I bet you can guess what happened next. Yes, this is the story of Buckley and Smith, but Scoundrel continues the upwards trend in true crime books recently that say a hearty F you to the criminals and do more service to the victims. You know, imagine losing a loved one in such a horrific fashion only to have a celebrity come along and say they know the truth better than than you or the criminal justice system and get that person released. I mean, I, I can't even imagine, you know, what that was like for the family of Victoria Zelinsky. You know, Weinman humanizes her because so often victims are forgotten in favor of their killers. And this is a wild, wild story. You know, Weinman also explains just what a cunning psychopath Smith was. You know, he was able to fool Buckley. He was able to fool everyone, including the media and a Knopf editor who gave him a book deal after he was released. And this is in spite of the fact that there was mountains of evidence against him in the crime. Basically... It was the smoking gun. He was basically found, like, with the smoking gun. You know, he he was just... It's unbelievable to me that anyone could imagine that he didn't do this. You know, but, you know, Smith could only hide his true nature for so long. Um, So if you want to read a really incredulous story and think about, you know, just how much easier it is these days for someone to get the word out about their case, about other people, and how the public is still so easily manipulated, it's just fascinating. I want to give content warnings, obviously, for mentions of kidnapping, sexual assault, murder, and capital punishment. This is Scoundrel, how a convicted murderer persuaded the women who loved him, the conservative establishment, and the courts to set him free by Sarah Weinman. Wow, that sounds like a lot. Right? (laughs) Also, that's a lot of title. I'm going to write a nonfiction book, and it's going to be called Nonfiction Book. Here is where I take up all this space with some more words after the fact by Liberty Hardy. (laughs) Well, it reminds me, like, of college papers like it has like blah blah the blah 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 etc etc yeah well i mean i think that nonfiction books are kind of at a disadvantage because when you pick up a novel and it's called scoundrel you know people will be like oh a novel which is not real let me look at the back and see what it's about but not everyone you know you need to get that point across like what your book is about when you have nonfiction. You know, or else people are going to be like, I don't know what that's about. You know, maybe. I'm just guessing. (laughs) Although, you know, like when like Mary Roach had bonk, I mean, it could have just been bonk without the subtitle. And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm in. (laughs) But it could have been about concussions. You don't know. It could have been about concussions. Nerf bats. Who knows? Like, (laughs) so, I mean, that's why she needed like to say more about it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's what I'm thinking, you know. Oh. It's just like they're just so long, that's all. And I feel silly when I say them on the show, but, you know, it, it does them a service by explaining, like, what the book is about, of course. I love it. I'm going to write a nonfiction book and, like, the sub, like, <laughs> the subtitle's going to take up the rest of the cover. Right? You could start, like, the book on the cover, like that Dave Edgar's novel, the title of which is escaping me right now. But, like, the book actually started on the cover. I don't know if you remember that. It was a long time ago. It was oh, a, no. It was a McSweeney's thing. Like, the first word started at the beginning of the cover. Moving on. Anyway, moving on. My last pick, Recitatif, a story by Toni Morrison with an introduction by Zadie Smith. It was just Toni Morrison's birthday, I believe. And this book actually came out at the beginning of this month, but I love it so much that I needed to talk about it on the show. 
1980, Toni Morrison wrote her one and only short story. This book is that story, as well as a phenomenal essay by Zadie Smith. It is very short, under 100 pages, and I think the audiobook is under two hours. The essay is first, and then the short story. However, if you haven't read the short story before, my recommended reading is skip forward, read the short story first, then go back, read Zadie Smith's introduction, and then read the story again. In Morrison's own words, recitative is an experiment in the removal of all racial codes from a narrative about two characters of different races for whom racial identity is crucial. The two characters are Roberta and Twyla. They're both eight-year-old girls who are from poor families. Their respective mothers drop them off at the St. Bonaventure shelter, making them wards of the state. We learn many things about Roberta and Twyla. One has a sick mother, one has a mother who dances all night. One has a mother who is very religious, one has a mother who wears too tight pants. The girls are roommate at St. Bonaventure's for four months, and the story follows them there for a while, then they meet again and again and again as they grow older. One of the things we know about the two girls is that one is white and one is black, but we do not know which is which. Morrison deliberately does not tell us, and this story is written in a way that it is impossible to tell for sure. You can try to guess, but a few sentences later, I promise your opinion will change and then flip-flop again in the next paragraph. It is very clear in the story that race is incredibly important to the tale, and that crucial piece of information is deliberately kept from readers. Even details such as geographic setting don't allow readers to determine the races of the two main characters. Big content warning for this book for ableism and violence against a disabled character. The character is Maggie, who worked at the home where the girls were. The girls were very mean to Maggie, and oddly, when Twyla and Roberta meet years later, they argue about what race Maggie was. Recitative is absolutely fascinating, and I love, love, love Smith's deconstruction and examination of the story. It's one of those stories that tells the reader more about themselves in the reading than it tells about the characters. I'm reminded of the phrase I've heard people use, the I don't see color situation. Well, it's not even an option in reading this story, and it's delightfully chaotic in this way. I read it many days ago, and I can't get it out of my mind. It's so good. It's Recitative, a story by Toni Morrison with an introduction by Zadie Smith. All right. So those are our new books. What are you going to read next? So the two books I'm reading now, um, first is Creative Quest by Amir Thompson, a.k.a. Questlove. He was his answer on Jeopardy the other day. I was very excited. Was he? Yeah. I love that. Creative Quest actually came out in 2018, and it's, like, been on my TBR for, like, almost four years now. So I'm listening to it on audiobook, which he is a musician, among many other things. So there's also, like, music in the audiobook and stuff. And it's read by him. So I love it. Um, And then the other book I am reading comes out in March. It is The Bone Orchard by Sarah A. Mueller. And I just took it off the shelf now, and I haven't even flipped to the first page. So it'll be fun. Very cool. How about you? So 
I ordered, so there was this thing on Book Talk recently, which is like the bookish TikTok. I don't have a TikTok account. I just started watching The Big Bang Theory, which came out in 2007. So by that math, I'll probably get a TikTok account in like 2029 or something. Um, <laughs> but I heard about this because there is a book called Kane's Jawbone by Edward Powis Mathers, who wrote it under the name Torquemada. And this book talk person, book talker, I don't know, that sounds weird, talked about it and everybody wanted to read it. So here's like a blurb. It's been impossible to get. It's from 1934. It's been on back order forever. It just came in. And so here's the blurb from the, the book because I, I can't do it justice or really even really explain it. I don't understand it quite myself. But it says that in 1934... The Observer's cryptic crossword compiler, Edward Powys Mathers, a.k.a. Torquemada, released a novel that was simultaneously a murder mystery and the most fiendishly difficult literary puzzle ever written. The pages have been printed in an entirely haphazard order, but it is possible, through logic and intelligent reading, to sort the pages into the only correct order, revealing six murder victims and their respective murderers. Only three puzzlers have ever solved the mystery of Cain's jawbone. Do you have what it takes to join their ranks? Please note this puzzle is extremely difficult and not for the faint-hearted. Like, what? I, I feel like I heard that, like, six people have solved it since they reissued it. But that just sounds banana pants and not real, so I had to see it for myself. Because, I mean, with no expectations of being able to solve it at all. You know, so, I mean, I barely can get through my wordles. <laughs> Your mortals. Wasn't Torquemada the name of like the grand, like one of the grand inquisitors of the Spanish Inquisition? Like, wasn't that the name of like a horrible person? It's very possible. <laughs> I have no idea. But yeah, I, I just, it just sounds so interesting to me that I, I had to have it, of course, because like, how dare someone talk about a book that I don't have? I must get it for myself. <laughs> how dare they? Yeah. Do you know who she is? <laughs> Not like that. Just like, I need every book. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't even cracked it open, and I did not even know, like, I just knew that I needed it, and I did not even know that the pages aren't even in order until I read the blurb to use for the show. I was like, oh, hey, look at that. So, yeah, but very excited. It's probably, like, one of those things where you could probably just go on the internet now, and somebody's posted the answers or something, but, you know. Where's the fun in that? Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's all for today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. Please don't spoil Kane's jawbone for me. Uh, you can find us online. Patricia hangs out on Twitter and Instagram at the info file. I mostly hang out on Instagram at friends and comes alive because I don't have a TikTok account. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And you can also go to the show notes and find a link to YouTube for the closed captioning and also find the link. This is your last week to get Wordle inspired merchandise. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading. reading.